All right, good morning, guys. Welcome to Trailhead Church. My name is Steve. I'm the lead pastor here, and uh, welcome to Advent. Merry Christmas, guys. Um, We had a huge event yesterday. Uh, It's our affordable Christmas event. Uh, We've been doing it every year since the year we started, and uh, it was pretty phenomenal. Um, if uh, If you served yesterday, would you just raise your hand? I would love to see the number of hands that go up around the room. How incredible is that? Did you guys have fun doing it? It looked like, I mean, it was just a blast. So thank you for serving, you guys. Yesterday, we served 66 families, which represents about 145 kids. Um, that's a pretty significant impact that, that we get to have as a little body, um, just moving out in, in love and in grace to be a blessing. And so thank you for everyone who donated. Thank you for everyone who who served, of course, huge thanks to our leaders. Um, our leaders were stepping up all the way through the process. It's about a, a six-month super intense leader. It's year-round, but it's about six months of pretty super intense leadership to pull that off. Amanda Kernan this year was our, uh, our point person, so huge thanks and props to her and, and to all the team leaders and everything else. So you guys, thanks for serving. Um, I also want to let you know next week... We have another opportunity for generosity. Next week is going to be our, our year-end um, special offering. We, we take this the, the second week of December each year, and it's an opportunity for us as a body to come together uh, at the end of the year and, and just kind of in gratitude for, for all the blessings that God has given us, for all the grace um, we give. And, and we use this offering to go to, to fix problems that, that we can't afford or we're, we haven't budgeted for and, and to be generous in ways that, that allow us to go above and beyond. And so we sent out a letter this week to our members and many of our regular attenders about this, but I wanted to let you know this year we're going to be focusing on, on three specific things. Um, the first is the building. There are some areas of the building that um, either didn't get done in, in the renovation, um, the kitchen, uh, it's really the only primary area left that we haven't done, um, but also some, some emerging areas of, of needed maintenance. Um, when you get an older building that all of a sudden gets a ton of traffic, uh, things need, need attention. And, and if, I don't know if you guys have noticed, our front steps are starting to crack and, and uh, we need some, some tuck pointing done. And, and so that's one area we would love to address or, or, or to finally actually get the kitchen in a good shape where our, our volunteers are able to... to um, use the cabinetry, and we have sinks that are deep enough to actually do the coffee pots and things like that, uh, but also to, to address some of these areas of need. The second area we're focusing on is our partnership uh, on mission regionally with, with R3. R3 is a, uh, a not-for-profit that serves in East St. Louis in partnership with City of Joy, uh, and their primary thing is, is, is they develop relationships with youth in East St. Louis. They give them job training and life skills opportunities. They hire them. They, they then renovate houses. Uh, that they can they, they get cheap uh, and, and then they they turn around and, and sell them f- uh, for the good of the community and so we're going to be partnering with R three uh, we already have been as far as 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 um, we we've, we've already worked with them we've already developed a relationship with them but with our special offering we'd love to to bless them at the year end uh, to equip them to continue to bless East St Louis. Um, and then the third area we're focusing on is is our ability to continue to engage in global mission. Uh, over the last seven years, we've sent over 50 people on short-term missions to, to different places, everywhere from East Asia to, to areas around the United States. Uh, we're going to be focusing, continuing to focus on, on international opportunities for people to go to East Asia, but obviously this year on our radar is Honduras as well. Uh, we're going to start building up hopefully a fund that can help scholarship some folks that can't afford it uh, so that we can get teams going down as we continue to invest um, in that area where we have sponsored so many children so that we can be a blessing to that community. And so that's the vision for it, you guys. 10% of it does go to church planting. We take 10% of everything we receive and we send it out automatically to equip church planting because that's just, that's just part of who we are. And so um, that's what we're doing. Now, it's going to be taken next week. It's going to be taken at the end of the service. That is, in addition to our regular offering, we, we, we do take our regular offering to fund the normal mission budget of the church, which is the operational budget. And so um, we're asking you to, to pray about giving above and beyond, right? Being, being an additional generous gift at the end of the year to equip us to fix some problems and be generous in some unique and powerful ways. And so pray about it. Ask God what he wants you to do with your money. That's, that's all we're asking you to do, right? Pray about it and, 
and, and consider how you can be part of what God is doing and, and how God is leading you to, to be a blessing in this way. We'll be taking that offering next week at, at the end of the service. All right, so this is the beginning of the Advent season, you guys. Um, Advent is a word that, that means arrival or coming. Okay, so when we talk about the Advent season, we're talking about the season in which we refocus our attention on the arrival, uh, obviously, of Jesus, right? He is the heart of the Advent season. It is a time to look forward, uh, to renew our hope, and to look back, to renew our gratitude. So, so that's where our sermon series is going in the month of December. We're going to start off in Genesis chapter 3, so grab your Bibles and flip over to Genesis chapter 3. If, if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. And in our Bibles, we're going over to page 2. It's all the way at the beginning, right? We're starting at the start, okay? Um, I want to give you a vision of what I hope to accomplish with this series. Uh, I have had, over the years, um, countless conversations with believers, um, and it's literally countless because I don't count, um, but, but I, I have these conversations, and, and I'll ask people, you know, um, what are you excited about when it comes to Christmas? Right? What, what lights you up? Right? When we're coming into the month of December, we're, we're a few short weeks away from, from this day that we, in some way or another, are thinking about all year long, either planning for it or working toward it or, or, or you know, I mean, it really is kind of a big deal uh, for us. What are, you, what are you excited about? And the automatic answer, the perfunctory answer, the, the, the Sunday school answer is always the first answer, which is, well, I'm excited about Jesus. Right? Well, if you're a follower of Christ, that, that's the conversation. You know, it's like, yeah, I'm excited about Jesus. Jesus, Jesus came, right? Jesus, Jesus did this great thing, right? I'm, I'm, I'm happy about Jesus. Yeah, that's good. Um, in fact, some will take it to the point where, where they try to make it the focus of their, their whole Christmas, right? Um, I have very, very good friends who, who like, they, they get up on Christmas morning, and as a family, they sing happy birthday to Jesus, and, and they have like a cake, and, and they do all this stuff, and I think that's wonderful right? I think that's wonderful. It's a great way to, I don't know, celebrate. It's, it's good, right? And then if I keep pushing though, all right, good, good, good answer. That's the right one. Um, what else are you excited about at Christmas? Well, then we get into some stuff like, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm excited, you know, to see the kids just have this experience, or I'm excited about visiting friends, or, or I'm excited about you know, and, and if I keep asking, right, if I talk long enough, it, it turns into a counseling session um, because invariably it, it, it goes to, yeah, well, I kind of hope my parents don't overboard all over the place again. I'm, you know, I'm kind of dreading the family gathering with my crazy uncle or, you know, I'm kind of pretty soon that stuff starts coming out. Like the, all the tensions that come with big holidays uh, start, start coming out. You know, I'm just so busy. All right, you guys, listen. Every believer knows that Christmas should be about Jesus, right? I mean, no, that's not controversial. I'm not saying anything that you, you haven't heard and don't know. Right? Christmas should be about Jesus, but, you know, let's admit it, you guys. It's not. Let's just, can we just admit it? It's not, right? Um, and, and, and so we end up, like, carrying this guilt, because we know it should be, but we know it's not, and so we try to, and, and so we, you know, we'll make a happy birthday to Jesus while the kids are sitting there like, yeah, let's do this so we can get to the presents, right? So, so we know, we, we know it should be about Jesus, right? And some guys go way overboard. They're like, yeah, no tree, no presents. It's going to be about Jesus. And then they're carrying around this inner shame because they know they've really just made it about themselves now, and, and their kids resent them, and their wives are disappointed, right? And so th- there's, there's this tension. How do we make G- Christmas actually about Jesus? Um, here's the thing, you guys. How do we make Christmas more about Jesus? Um, uh, not by trying harder, right? We just spent 12 weeks in a series called Invitation to More that was all about how anything real that takes place in our hearts doesn't result from us working and trying. It works from us responding. The key to human change, the key to genuine transformation, the key to genuine joy is responding right? Not working, not trying, not resolving, but by responding, growing in gratitude and growing in faith. 
So we're going to spend December with an attempt to provoke our faith, to respond, to provoke our hearts, to respond to the incredible promise that God has given us, to stir your gratitude and, and, and to awaken your hope. So I have two goals coming out of this. Um, I hope, first of all, to increase our gratitude, that, that we genuinely would have an increased sense of gratitude and, and the contentment and the thankfulness and the humility and the joy that comes out of that as we go through the season. But, but secondly, uh, my hope is that I, I increase your longing. I hope because the promise will do two things. It will bring great comfort, comfort and, 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 and it will bring uh, discomfort. A promise will, will make you grateful and make you hungry. It will increase both your, your joy but also your yearning. And so that's, that's really where I hope to go uh, over the course of, of this series. All right, so we're going to begin in Genesis chapter 3, starting at the start. And so um, I'm, we're going to read the whole chapter just because we seldom get to do that. Um, and, and so please follow along with me. Uh, we're starting on page 2 in Genesis 3, 1. And uh, here we go. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say to you, Shall, uh, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, She gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. And the woman, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you, shall, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin, and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, Genesis chapter 3. Um, you know, I don't know, if you've been raised in a Christian home, you just kind of get used to it and, and maybe stop noticing the weirdness. Um, 
If, if you are, weren't raised in a Christian home, if you are just kind of curious about the faith, let's just acknowledge up front this stuff's weird, okay? Um, it is weird. There's, there's Adam and Eve, which is weird. There's a talking snake, which is weird. There, there's, you know, God talking. And, you know, so, so I get it. It's weird, all right? But I'm going to ask you, please just stick with me. There's stuff in this chapter that is profoundly meaningful for us. And, uh, and so uh, we can talk about how this plays out, what it looks like to, to look at this from a scientific perspective. We can talk about what it looks like to talk about it from a historical perspective. I'm not going to do that this morning. Uh, I'm happy to talk to you one-on-one about those things, but, but I'm going to ask you to stick with me because there's a lot of truth here we need to hear. To understand Genesis chapter 3, uh, I think we need to kind of just quickly look back at Genesis 131, right? Genesis 131. Uh, at the end of Genesis 1, after the six days of creation, God creates, and at the end of each day, he, he looks at what he had created, and he says, it is good, right? And then he gets to the end of day 6, verse 31 of chapter 1, and he says, and God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day, and behold, it was very good. God looked at creation, and he saw in it a beautiful reflection of his own attributes, beauty, strength, creativity, possibility, productivity, community, integrity, right? This is the period of time that scholars often call the period of shalom, right? Shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word uh, that means peace, but it means a lot more than peace. And so I want to show you a quote. This is one of my favorite quotes about Shalom from Cornelius Platinga. Uh, you can read along as I, as I read this. Shalom, the webbing together of God, humans, and all creation in justice, fulfillment, and delight in what the Hebrew prophets call Shalom. We call it peace, but it means far more than mere peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing. I love that. In the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight, a rich state of affairs in which natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts fruitfully employed, a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as it welcomes the creature in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. All right, so before Genesis chapter 3, things were the way they ought to be, (laughs) right? And we all kind of have this intuitive sense that things aren't the way they're supposed to be, don't we? Every time we watch the news, every time we, we get up in the morning, every time we, we, we run into a physical ailment or, or a, a, a social difficulty, we, we sense this is not the way it's supposed to be, right? And, so, and we also sense, honestly, that our best efforts aren't fixing the problem, amen? <laughs> All you got to do is look around today, right? Our best efforts aren't fixing the problem. Genesis Chapter 1 tells us where we came from. Genesis chapter 1 tells us where we long to return to. Everything we do is an attempt to regain shalom. To taste it, just to taste it, to get a little more of it. Everything you do. It's why you get up in the morning. It's why you go to school. It's why you go to work. It's why you work hard in your relationships. It's everything you do is an attempt to regain and to experience some small measure of shalom again. The picture of life in Genesis 1 and 2 is is exactly how it's supposed to be. And that's until Genesis chapter 3, right? Genesis chapter 3 is kind of a bummer of a chapter um, because it ruins all of it, right? So take a look at verses 10 and 11. Uh, I'm going to skip some stuff here. Obviously, there's way more in this chapter than, than we can address um, together. Um, actually, let's take a look at, at, is it 10 and 11? No, let's start in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. 
And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Our first parents um, did what they weren't supposed to do, right? There was a tree in the garden. God said, look, you got, you got all the trees, man, all the trees. But there's one tree. Just stay away from that, right? That's the one I don't want you to eat from. And, of course, that becomes the point of temptation. That becomes the point uh, at which they must either trust God or trust themselves. That becomes the point at which they must decide, I will either live in dependence on God, in faith in God, in joy in the overflow of God, or I will try to supplant God. I will try to be like God. I will not live under the authority of God. I will live under my own authority. I will not live in the provision of God. I will provide for myself. They betrayed their heavenly Father. They betrayed the one who created them in his own image. They committed cosmic treason. It's a phrase I love. R.C. Sproul uses that phrase. They committed cosmic treason. But that's just not a capital offense. It's like cosmic treason against your loving father. It is betrayal at the deepest and most intimate level. They rejected God and broke the shalom at the heart of creation. Adam and Eve were created to be the stewards of creation, the vice regents of God. They were created in the image of God to rule over the creation of God. They were, they were designed and created to live under the authority of God and the overflow of His goodness. And all of creation was designed to live under the authority of man in the overflow of their goodness. That they were to act as God in the image of God under the authority of God. They were stewards of creation. And when Adam and Eve betrayed the love of God... A sin bomb went off that destroyed that entire structure. And the shockwaves of it are still being felt today. Genesis chapter 3 is a survey of the damage. After the bomb goes off, that's what Genesis chapter 3 is. It's looking around saying, let me just point out all the things that just broke. God very graciously is saying, look, there's some stuff that's going to happen now. And it's not going to be very pleasant. So let me explain to you what it is, right? The first is, is their relationship with themselves. See, every key relationship was affected by the loss of shalom. And, and the first thing we see in the chapter is the loss of shalom was self, right? In verse 7, in verse 7, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. So you're like, man, why all this hatred of nakedness? It's not about being naked. Right? God is not ashamed of the human body. He created it. <laughs> right? God's not ashamed of its creativity or its strength or, or its frailty or its sexuality. Or, that's just not what this is about. Right? This is the awakening. This moment is the awakening the sudden of the sudden awareness of exposure. This is the first time they ever felt exposed. This is the first time they ever felt like they had something to hide. In this moment, with the loss of shalom with themselves, there we see the, the birth of shame. I am exposed and, and I need to hide. There are things about me I can't let you see. There are things about me I can't even let me see. So I sew together the fig leaves of my reputation, of my performance, of my fancy business card or my fancy car. I sew together the fig leaves of of my creative endeavors or my professional accomplishments. I sew together the fig leaves of, of all the things that I do to try to hide myself from you. It was all born in this moment. This was the birth of that voice that you have in the back of your head. I know you have it because we all have it. You know the one that I'm talking about, the inner critic? The one that is just constantly, constantly either tearing you down or puffing you up, right? You're not good enough. You're not strong enough. You're not smart enough. You're not creative enough. You don't measure up. You're not lovable. Or, at least you're better than him or her. That voice just goes to work condemning or puffing. And we know once we get puffed up, it just makes the condemnation that much more painful. That voice is working on us continually. It was born in this moment. Right? And we're not just talking about shame, we're talking about fear and hiding and blame shifting and performing. All of these things were born in us because we lost shalom, peace, balance, flourishing, the wholeness and the fullness of life within ourselves. We, we are now our own enemies. 
in this moment was born every form of self-hatred, self-inflicted insecurity, mental illness, and emotional suffering. And this happened because we lost shalom with God. All right, take a look at verses 8 through 10. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called out to the man, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Hmm. Uh, all right, weirdness, right? Uh, like you can hide from God in the trees, right? That, 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 that's just dumb, right? These aren't toddlers hiding behind the curtains thinking you can't see them in the living room in a game of hide-and-seek, right? They know who God is, and they know his power. They're hiding in, in the trees. Um, why? Because God's presence used to be a source of life, security, and joy. But it now provokes fear and defensiveness and hiding. His holiness was life. They could walk into the perfect, glowing holiness of God and feel perfectly at home and, in fact, be made perfectly alive in the presence of His righteousness. That holiness now was a threat because they were no longer holy. What used to give them life is now the threat of death. What used to invite them in to the warmth of love was now hostile. And then God says, where are you? Um, all right, so let me just give you a little tip. God knew, right? God, God knew. When God asks questions, it's not because he needs to find out information, right? When God asks questions, it's because we need to find out information. When God asks questions, it's a gift of grace to us. He's basically saying, hey, there's something you're not seeing here. Let me help you out. Right? I'm just going to point at it. What are you, what are you, what are you doing? Right? It's a, it, this is actually an incredibly profound existential question. Where are you? What have you done? Do you see the choice you've made? Are, are, do you have any concept of what you've just thrown away? Where are you? I believe it was an invitation to grace and an invitation that Adam was ill-equipped to receive. Instead of coming forth with honesty and humility, because there's been the broken, brokenness of shalom in him and now there's this emergence of pride and the need to hide and perform, we see instead deception and blame shifting, Right? You know that woman you gave me? She gave me a fruit, man. She did it, right? Eve, did you do this? Uh, I was tempted, right? Deception, hiding, pride, performance, blame shifting. Adam can't be honest because honesty has been broken in him. He can't be honest. Sin wasn't just something he had done. Sin had broken something in him. And in breaking it, it was irrevocably broken. He could not fix it. He could not now become humble. You can't choose to be humble when you're prideful. You can't choose to, to go back to this place because, because you've been alienated from it. God, the source of life. Listen to this, you guys. God, the source of life, is now perceived to be the greatest threat to life. God, the creator of pleasure, is now seen as the greatest threat to pleasure. God, the source of security, is now seen as, as someone who cannot be trusted because he cannot be controlled. God, the source of true glory, is now seen as a threat to my personal agenda. The loss of shalom with God alienates us from God. Not because God missees us, but because we missee God. God still draws near to them. God still arrives in the evening for their evening walk. God still presents himself to them. But they are unable to receive what he presents. They lost shalom with God, and now God's holiness was threatening instead of inviting. 
So it plays out then in, in every relationship, right? Every key relationship, my relationship with myself, my relationship with God, and it plays out in our relationships with each other. Take a look at verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. All right, there's a lot of debate about what these words actually mean. Um, and I'm not going to get into the scholarly debate about, about how that plays out. I think there are some commonalities in the debated points. I think there are some things, let's, let's just go to, to the things that we can agree on, right? There's one thing that's really, really clear from this, from this uh, passage. It's this, that shalom in the closest and most intimate forms of human relationship has now been broken. Motherhood. Motherhood was, was supposed to be this um, opening of a flower of joy and delight, of discovery, of, of, of increased contentment, peace, and joy, just layers upon layers and discovery and rediscovery and rediscovery of joy, peace, fullness, wholeness, and flourishing. <laughs> um, there's that. There's that. There's that. It's there. Right? What we find in our experience today is, is that there's still a glory. We still taste the original intent, but, but that's not all we taste, is it? It has become war. It is not just the discovery of joy. It is the battle of wills. It, it is not just joy. It, it is pain. There has been a loss of shalom in, in the closest and most intimate forms of human relationship. In marriage, he says, your desire will be for your husband and he, his desire will be to rule over you. Again, I'm not going to try to, I don't want to get into the debate of exactly what he means by that, but what we know is this. Marriage was intended to be a covenant relationship in which I came and said, I am going to give myself freely to you. I am going to live for your joy. And you are going to live for my joy. I'm going to pour myself out to you for the rest of our covenant relationship and the rest of our lives, living for your joy, giving for your joy, thinking not about me but about you, being completely consumed with your happiness as you're completely consumed with mine. Does that describe your marriage? <laughs> what? what? <laughs> yeah, don't answer. Let's just, yeah, let's just... Um, what was meant to be the most profound experience of community has become one of the most intimate battlefields of competition. Because I cannot live freely for your good. I see life now as a field of limited resources. And in a field of limited resources, I need to keep what I have and fight for more. And you are a threat to my more. And I love you as long as you give me what I want. I love you as long as you are what I need you to be. And when you stop being what I need you to be, I fall out of love with you. That's not love. That's selfishness. At the heart of most marriage contracts is not love. It is a very convoluted form of self-interest. I partner together with you because you do for me things I want you to do. It becomes competition. It becomes a battlefield. It becomes this, this incredibly difficult place of intimacy that is fraught with, with buried landmines that you haven't even discovered most of them yet. I mean, here's the thing, you guys. Let's, let's just call it out. This is, this is what happens. That's what God's describing. This is the bomb of, of, of sin going off in the shalom of human relationships. And it didn't just stay between mother and child and, and, and husband and wife. They then passed that brokenness on to their children, and it became the brokenness at the heart of all human relationships. Right? When you go to Genesis chapter 4, I mean, holy cow, Eve watches as her oldest son murders her secondborn, as Cain murders Abel. Eve experienced the shalom of God in the garden. She was named Eve, the mother of all living. And she experienced the first human murder when one child rose up against the other. 
You want to talk about profound sorrow and a profound sense of loss. That's what happens. That's what happened between Cain and Abel, and that's what's still happening today. We see the world as this place of limited resources where everyone's a threat. Your agenda is a threat to my agenda. So I must defeat you. That, that explains politics. That explains geopolitical movements. That explains the conflict in your own neighborhood, on your own school board, on, on your own. I mean, we just see this cropping up over and over and over and over. We end up using people instead of loving people and wounding ourselves and blaming others for the pain. We lost shalom between us and ourselves, between us and God. We lost shalom between us and others, and we lost shalom between us and the rest of the created order. Take a look at verses 17 through 19. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten to the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth to you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. We see the loss of shalom between Adam and Eve and the rest of the created order. The created order was supposed to uh, yield to the stewards of creation, to joyfully submit to, to their cultivation and stewardship, right? God gave them the incredible gift of culture. And you're like, what? That's what a garden is, right? God gave them all the raw materials of life and then cultivated an area of it and said, take this gift of, of cultivated wildness, this gift of culture, maintain it and push it out. Be culture makers, be like me, right? Be productive, be creative, be scientific, be discover, like learn and grow, like this incredible gift. And all of creation was supposed to yield joyfully to the hand of the steward. And yet now creation rises up against the hand of the steward. Work harder, be less productive. And where once creation would have gifted you with flowers, it now comes at you with thorns and thistles. Tornadoes, earthquakes, hurricanes, heart disease, cancer. All of these things were born in this moment. The loss of shalom between Mankind and the rest of creation. There are four key areas, four key relationships. When Adam and Eve rebelled against God, they broke shalom, and in breaking shalom, they broke the flourishing of the presence of God in all these key relationships. When we look at this chapter, it is a compelling understanding of why things are the way they are. People will ask, and I think very rightfully ask, how can God be both good and in control and the world be like it is? He's either good and not in control, or he's in control, but he's not very good. Because the world is a hard and bleak place. As we see these four areas of loss of shalom play out on a geopolitical level, most of human life is defined by suffering. Now, those of us who live in incredibly affluent ways, all of us do in America, are shielded from much of that suffering. But even in the shielding of that suffering, we're not shielded from, from the depths of the brokenness of our own hearts, from the suffering that comes from the brokenness of relationships. Even, even us and our affluence cannot undo the breaking of shalom, and at the end of the day, we are dust and we shall return to dust. The end of our story is already written. We already know how it goes. In this moment, death was brought into the created order. This is why things are the way they are. Every bad thing that happens falls in one of these four areas. Every bad thing that happens. How can God be good? 
How can God be in control and things be the way they are? It's because God's allowing the bomb of our rejection of Him to play out its natural course. And the reality is it would be a whole lot worse were God to completely withdraw His grace. Things are not as bad as they would be if God were not acting to restrain the effects of this bomb. It is a very compelling framework for understanding the suffering of the world, but it's an even better framework for understanding what we hope for. You guys, when we understand what we've lost, we have a better vision for what we're going to regain. When we understand what we've lost, we have a better understanding of our hope. You guys, we lost shalom. We need it back. But we're powerless to get it. Your best efforts will always fall short. You cannot fix yourself. (laughs) You can't fix your spouse. You can't fix your kids. And you sure can't fix the world. Your best efforts will always fall short. Because we can't fix what we broke. Because we broke ourselves in the breaking. But there's something beautiful buried right here in this really, really dark chapter is the first promise that should give us hope. It's an incredible promise that becomes the golden thread of hope that is woven through the broken and ugly tapestry of human history. It's a promise of redemption and restoration, of us being bought out of what we cannot buy ourselves out of, paying the price of our sin, and us being restored. Restored to what? To shalom. A promise that God has not abandoned us in our helpless brokenness. That God, when He arrived on the scene in Genesis chapter 3, didn't arrive to pronounce judgment on Adam and Eve, but to give a promise that was designed to inspire hope. Take a look at verses 14 and 15. And Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are to you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This is where it starts getting interesting. Verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. I will put enmity between your offspring and her offspring. All right, we're not talking about your phobia of snakes here. That has nothing to do with it, okay? This is really nothing to do with your relationship with with snakes. Um, What he's talking about is the serpent's desire to bend creation away from the Creator. All right, when we move forward in biblical history, when we read through the rest of the New Testament and the Old Testament, what we find is is that the serpent is, is actually the embodiment of a force, an angelic force that has rebelled against God, right? He's a personal force that goes by the name of of Lucifer, or we know him as Satan. You're like, all right, here we go, Steve. You really believe in these invisible beings? I do. I think if God can create a physical order as complex and as beautiful and as crazy as this, he can create an invisible order that's just as complex. And he did. He says he did. And we know that there was a rebellion in that order that preceded our rebellion. And that Lucifer was the guardian of the glory of God, that that he was the one who was in a sense to proclaim the glory of God and guard the glory of God, but he became jealous of the glory of God. He wanted not to guard the glory of God, but to be equal to the glory of God. He became infatuated with his own strength and beauty because he was the strongest and most beautiful of the angelic creation. And, And in that pride, he determined, I will be like God. And if you think that's an insane choice for an angel to make, look at human history. It's the same exact temptation he brought to humanity. He he couldn't hurt God. He couldn't get God off his throne. He couldn't take the glory of God away from God, but he could hurt the creatures created in his image by setting a trap. And we were trapped. And we are helpless and we are hopeless in that trap. But God, 
promised a hero. I'll put enmity between you, your seed, and her seed. He moves from generalities to specifics here. He moves from talking about humanity to talking about a specific human. You shall bruise his heel, but he shall crush your head. I love how it just kind of, we're talking about all these humans, and then all of a sudden we're talking about this very, very specific. This one seed of the woman, this one descendant of the woman, this one son of Eve. This is what theologians call the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first preaching of the gospel, the first declaration of good news, that God has not abandoned us in our brokenness, that He has not left us into this mess we have made, but He has promised a hero. There will come an offspring, there will come a son. And even though he is wounded, he will break what binds us. He will crush the head of the power that enslaves us. In his wounding, he will pay our price. And in his victory, he will offer us deliverance. In his wounding, our greatest enemy will be crushed. But in that crushing of wounding and crushing, God will restore, through that act, his shalom to the created order. God will redeem. He will pay the price of our rebellion, and he'll pay it himself, even though he's the one who's offended. And God will restore. God will once again see his glory at the heart of all creation. He will restore shalom to every relationship. You guys, just pause and think about that. If you could give your kids any gift this Christmas, huh? Did you give any gift better than this? What parent wouldn't die to see their child restored to the full experience of the shalom of God? Our heavenly parent did that. He paid the price so we could be restored. If you could get anything, what could be better than this? I'll take a million dollars. Really? And just magnify your suffering? And increase your distractions? What is better than the shalom of God? If you, if you have the shalom of God, you don't need money because you have God. If you have the shalom of God, you don't need fame because you've got the approval of God. If you have the shalom of God... You don't need to prove yourself. You don't need to, to, to find pleasures outside of God. Because in the right hand, Psalms tell us, in his right hand are all pleasures. God created them. If you have the shalom of God, you have the fullness of life. The flourishing of life. That promise created the first season of Advent that we call the Old Testament. The waiting for the coming waiting for Jesus to come, waiting for the seed of the woman to be born, that he might crush our enemy's head. And as human history moves forward, God repeats and defines this promise. And these promises are called the covenants of promise. There's a handful of them through the Old Testament where God reiterates his promise and defines it a little bit more narrowly and clearly. But let me just ask you something. Why did God give a promise to begin with? Couldn't he just do it without promising it? Couldn't he just do it without talking about it? Why did God give a promise? God gave a promise to provoke a response. God gave a promise to provoke us to once again respond to him. We had rejected him. We had rejected his authority and his love and his presence. And God in grace gave us a promise to reawaken with us the experience of humility and faith. It would be an invitation to start tasting the grace that was at the heart of this promise. God gave a promise to provoke you to trust and to provoke you to longing that you would trust in the promise and long for its fulfillment. 
You guys, God has already started working for our redemption. The hero has already come. His heel was bruised on the cross and and the enemy's power was crushed. The kingdom is already here. The victory is already won, but we live in the already not yet tension of the advent. We have already seen the victory, but we have not yet tasted its fulfillment. We have already received the gift of righteousness. We have not yet fully received the the covering of righteousness that allows us practically, without the brokenness of shalom, to move through life. God reiterates His promise to once again provoke our faith. To renew our gratitude. That we might once again take hold of grace and start feeling the painful yearning for the genuine fulfillment of the promise. As we continue through this series, we're going to be looking specifically at how God continues to reiterate this promise, to drive it home, to flesh it out in a sense before the flesh and blood comes. That it might reawaken within us a gratitude and a longing. You guys, I'm going to pray for us. We're going to go into a time of response. We're going to share communion together in a moment. We'll introduce that then. But let me pray for us and and just create a space where we can just sit with God for a few minutes. Pray and respond. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you that you are such a good and gracious God. That you did not, even though you were the one offended, respond to us in that offense. You didn't just look at Adam and Eve and say, if that's what you want, that's what you get. You looked with pity. You looked with mercy. You looked with a determination of grace to redeem what is lost and restore what had been broken, even though it would come at a profound cost to you. Lord, will you reawaken our hearts? This season is so distracting. This season is so exhausting. We got, we got big hopes and we got big fears and we got anxiety and we got all this stuff going on, Lord. Would you allow this promise to cut through the noise to reawaken our gratitude and reignite our hope that even as we go through this season, Lord, we, we'll be looking well beyond the celebration of Christmas morning to the celebration of the second coming, the second advent. Will you build our faith and increase our yearning that we might move through this season with greater clarity, greater focus on what's genuinely important, greater joy in the greatest gift ever given. Guys, take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.